Good evening and welcome to Town Square. I'm Beth Ann Kozlovich. As we like to tell you each week, our conversations include you. And if you'd like to join us anytime during the next hour, the phone lines are open. If you're on Oahu, call us at 955, pardon me, 941-3689, 941-3689. Or if you're on the neighbor islands or listening to the live stream, 877-941-3689. The U.S. response to addiction from alcohol, prescription, and street drugs is being refocused by the Surgeon General in a report most in the treatment community refer to as historic. Facing Addiction in America is the first comprehensive report on addiction, and it shifts the reasons for addiction from failure of character to how addiction changes the brain. Since it was released a month ago, it has been joined by this week's signing of the 21st Century Cures Act, Among other provisions, the law appropriates funds to help states expand and improve the response to the abuse of opioids and other substances and services to the mentally ill. Taken together, they could fuel long-term and bipartisan movements to integrate and lengthen treatment and quite possibly pay for it. Though this year, President Obama received far less than the $1 billion he'd sought to counter the opioid crisis. Even so, the help is being met with enthusiasm from doctors, outreach workers, and rehab providers. Tonight, we'll look in-depth at the landmark Surgeon General report and its impact on our already treatment-challenged state. Joining me tonight, Dr. Bill Haining. He's a tenured professor of psychiatry at the UH John A. Burns School of Medicine and director of MD programs for the medical school. He is also the director of the Addiction Psychiatry and Addiction Medicine Residency Training Programs. In 2014, the Hawaii Medical Association designated him as Hawaii's Physician of the Year. Eddie Mercero also joins us. He's a licensed clinical social worker and certified substance abuse counselor, chief of the Alcohol and Drug Abuse Division at the Hawaii Department of Health. And to round out our panel, a periodic guest on the program, Dr. Scott Miskovich, is here. He's the chairman of the State Narcotic Policy Steering Committee. His group works toward comprehensive legislative change to address overdose, death, addiction, and narcotic diversion in the state. He's a primary care physician in practice in Kaneohe. And, of course, you're here, too. And, again, if you'd like to join us, 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. Welcome to all of you, and thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Beth Ann. Thank you. you. When we looked at the report, there really wasn't that much that was really new in in terms of the way the numbers were presented. But the argument that was built got a lot of attention because it restructured a lot of those pieces that we had and really integrated them and formed the basis of the idea that I know all of you have been dealing with for a very long time, which is that none of this exists in isolation and these things very often are are codependent and and interdependent with so many other factors. As you look at it, for each of you, how much of a shift does this report really represent, either alone or taken in the context of of the 21st Century Cures Act? Dr. Haining? There's a comparable report from over 50 years ago in the form of the Surgeon General's report on smoking and the correlation with, uh, with lung cancer and diminished health then. That was a relatively brief and observational report. Essentially, it was obliging people to look at a problem that folks had chosen not to look at for a much longer period of time. 
It wasn't comprehensive in the sense of recommending any forms of treatment. It wasn't really a complete review of pulmonary medicine. It just simply said, this is bad for you. And it came from the Surgeon General, and that had heft. Um, We're seeing a similar impact from this, even though it's an entirely different kind of report. If you look at all, I think we were guessing about 450 pages or so of this. It's a textbook. And in fact, the folks that Vice Admiral Murphy has called together to produce this are some of the best authors of addiction textbooks in the country or internationally. What they've done is to provide a free online textbook for the identification and management of substance use disorders. And in support of that, they have provided, as you put it, um, a synthesis of all of the available research relating to prevalence, uh, relating to the trends involving addictions, and in brief, a justification for why it is that this book got put out there. It's a pretty signature event in his career, which, of course, uh, will likely end up uh, passing on with this administration. Eddie Mercer. Yeah, you're exactly right, Beth. And it's um, what's so exciting, and and Dr. Haining is is right as well. What's so exciting about this is not so much that it's new information for those of us that have worked in these in this profession and in, in these circles for years. What's really exciting is it stands to um, really change the dominant social paradigm about what addiction is and how we need to address it. And as you said earlier, um, it it. It changes the the discussion on the public level. Again, those of us that have been working in 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 these circles kind of know this, but on the broader public lef- level, it says this is a disease, and we need to treat it like a disease, and it's a complicated disease. And the only way to really make any difference or make any headway is to take a public health approach, as we do with diabetes or cancer or HIV. Scott Miskovich. I couldn't agree more with both uh, Dr. Haining and and Eddie, and I love what Eddie just brought up, and that is the comparison to diabetes. Right in the prelude and in the uh, beginning, it talks about how we spend $285 billion a year, and no one in the United States even questions, like, diabetes is a disease and, you know, that there's a lot of lifestyle choices that, you know, make people have diabetes. We're spending $400 billion on addiction, and yet we try to talk about it in a different light. You know, this starts to just continue the story that we can all talk about, that this is a disease. We need to treat it like a disease. As in a disease like diabetes, it's a comprehensive disease that requires all specialties to come together, all forms of government and health care. So I, I really appreciate where it is, and it's a great reference for us to start from. For such a long time, anything that had to do with mental illness was regarded as a stepchild to anything that would have to do with physical illness. And there was such a, a gulf between. We've been watching that merge ever so slowly, but this seems to say, look, it's all wrapped up in the same being, in the same person, and we have to regard that to use a word that gets used a lot, you know, holistically. But as you look at this report and the misconceptions that it talks about, the prejudices that it brings up, uh, especially that you know, surrounds alcohol and substance abuse, what examples would you really cite to, to show that high contrast between the way in which we used to operate in that old paradigm and the way in which we're moving societally toward looking at it very differently? I wonder if I can give a 
quick response to that. Or you could even have a lengthy response most, to that I was going to say most of my students would wonder if I could give a quick response to anything. <laughs> but um, So in an effort to do exactly that, notice that this report was preceded by a much more concise report from back in March, which was the Centers for Disease Control uh, Guidelines on Pain Management and Opioid Use. That, in a way, was kind of a... Um, it was kind of a toe in the water from the standpoint of the federal government and seeing how a comprehensive report recommending certain attitudes relating to the management of addictions was going to be received. It was received pretty enthusiastically, which m might seem pretty reasonable to those of us who are working in the field, but to a lot of folks outside of it, um, it, it, it was surprising. And part of this is historic. When... Uh, when Vincent Dole and Mari Neiswander first decided to start employing methadone back in the early 1960s in New York, they created an unintended career for both of them in the form of pushing back against resistance over the course of the next decade or so. And what has since become the single most successful endeavor in management of substance use disorders, methadone maintenance, even though it's very controversial for a lot of folks still, was not an easy sell. It took a long, long time, just the whole idea of, in some people's words, giving drugs to drug addicts, uh, was not interpreted as giving medication that, in fact, would allay the symptoms that would lead to people being able to reconstruct their lives. It was a hard, hard reorganization of point of view. Uh, and so it's surprising in a way here that this report is receiving such a good receipt in that a great deal of it involves correctly identifying substance use disorders as an illness rather than necessarily as just bad behavior. No, no, nobody feels bad about taking care of diabetics because by and large they, they don't do dumb stuff the same way our patients with alcohol use disorders or drug use disorders do. We also understand the brain better now than we ever have, which is to say that in understanding how it functions and how it can malfunction or be changed in its functioning, the plasticity of the brain, that that becomes a different point of discussion than we could have had, say, even five or ten years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, go ahead, Eddie, to, go ahead. Just to add, and I think Dr. Hanning summed it up really well, uh, there are two, two things for me. One is and Dr. Miskovich and I talked about this the other night, is uh, we have this term for uh, opioid addiction. We call it medication-assisted treatment. We wouldn't call giving prescribing insulin to a diabetic medication-assisted treatment. It's treatment. Um, and, again, those paradigm shifts need to continue to happen. Um, and to just follow up on what uh, the comment that you just made, Beth Ann, what's so exciting as well is that we're starting to, not only are we starting to learn more about how the brain works, we're starting to really kind of start to understand that behavior choices, thoughts, thinking, our, our, our paradigms are all interwoven into our physical and emotional and psychological well-being. And if we don't address these issues from that holistic standpoint, we're going to continue to um, kind of waste uh, efforts, funding, resources in trying to address this problem. This is also asking us to look at youth very differently than we have in past and to understand that you know, maybe that 
if it's true that the seat of judgment or reason doesn't really begin to crystallize until someone is in their middle 20s, then our expectations of what happens with someone who is 15 or, or 18 or 20 and what may happen to their brain as the result of experimentation with drugs also has to shift. Mm -hmm. This is now getting to be a really tall order for a lot of people who have been stuck in a mindset that says, as you said, Dr. Haining, this is this is bad behavior. Mm -hmm. This is the result of someone who doesn't have enough, uh, you know, internal fortitude and 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 the ability to stick to something or to just say no is like a lot of us were told when we were kids, which we know just patently doesn't work. Right. So we're also told though that addiction and and mental illness, as we began to talk about a moment ago often walk hand in hand. And and earlier today, I don't know if any of you had a chance to hear it, but Dr. Anna Lemke, chief of, of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic, was on fresh air. And it just made me think of that by the way you talked about treatment, Eddie Mercero, because she said that when they talk about the clinic and they have to use this term dual diagnosis to be able to sort of whitewash it or make it you know, palatable for someone to come in if they have perhaps mental illness or they're really coming in for addiction or vice versa, that it, it has to be softened in that sort of way. Are we really doing a disservice by not calling it just what it is? Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. And I'll let um, Dr. Miskovich and Dr. Hanning, uh, Hanning jump in. But uh, from my perspective, um, I think we do need to call it what it is. And I think we need to, but we do need to kind of look at the nomenclature that we use. Um, I think that's important. And some of that's happening and, and some of that's happened with the uh, mental health um, within the mental health arena, um, changing how, you know, the, the terms that we use for the individuals that we're working with from uh, clients, the consumers, who knows if that's made a difference. But as long as we're assessing the nomenclature that we utilize, again, going back to the idea of medication, a treatment, medication assisted treatment versus just treatment, um, we're going to continue to evolve the the paradigms through which we look at and the lens through which we look at these issues. Um, and if we're doing that well, then I think the rest happens. We uh, uh, With ADAD, we've just uh, uh, put out an RFP that changes what we used to call treatment plans for uh, substance abuse clients to wellness plans. So just changing those little pieces of nomenclature, it's the same thing. But, uh, you know, how we label them is different. If you're just joining us tonight on Town Square, we're taking a look at the Surgeon General's landmark, and some would say just utterly historic report, Facing Addiction in America, and looking at what it's attempting to do and, and the timing of that as well. There are a lot of people listening to this show tonight who have family members who are involved with addiction of one sort or another. I mean, I don't know many people who don't have somebody who they know or who is part of their family. Uh, there are not that many degrees of separation with people who know people who are addicted to something. And, and for those of you who do have someone in your family who is addicted to some substance, as, as perhaps you might have glanced at this report or have heard about it, does this give you a, a, a sense of hope that maybe you didn't have before in the way that we're approaching it, that if we're understanding that this is just as important as physical illness, if mental illness, if addiction is akin to any other disease, cancer, diabetes, the other things that we don't blink at when we're talking about giving money and research, then uh, 
Does this make you look at the person who is addicted a little differently? We want to hear from you, 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. But Scott Miskovich, I want you to jump back in here uh, as we were talking about changing how we approach these treatments and how we title them and whether we need to be more clear about what they are. In in the group I'm leading and in the practice that I'm leading and my work with a lot of the physician organizations, the most important thing for me is actually now we're actually starting to talk. And I when I say we're starting to talk, uh, Dr. Haining's groups and our groups, the treatment providers, we're starting to realize that one of the biggest uh, gaps we've had is having the primary care physicians who are having that long-term relationship get more comfortable to begin that conversation with the patient in the office and then get more comfortable in starting to reach out for referrals and vice versa, have the referrals reach back to, out to us and having us take an active role. Uh, Eddie is leading uh, an effort now through a grant that's going to be talking about um, screening, uh, brief intervention, and referral to treatment, which is going to be going across the state, training primary care physicians to start actively getting involved and taking an active role instead of kind of turning their head to it, as has been the standard up to this point. And which makes me think again of something that, that Dr. Anna Lemke said this morning or, or earlier today. In in talking about her book, uh, Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop. I mean, she clearly is pointing the finger at you guys, too, and, and to herself, because she's also a doc. But in looking at how this might be a case of, of being duped or just not wanting to see, there's a, there's a real difference in, in those two things. And taking the time, as she was talking about, to go to a database to actually see if someone else is prescribing for your patient. That takes time. And that, you know, her point was that, you know, maybe a lot of docs haven't been willing to do that. And so that, in effect, makes them complicit, does it? Heart and soul of uh, Tuesday night's uh, opiate group meeting. Uh, You're talking about the PDMP and it's going on across the country. Are we going to put legislation out to mandate doctors to check that database or should it be voluntary? You know, right now we probably have less than 10% as the Department of Health data shows us that we're checking that database. But the bottom line is it's all of our responsibility, and we have to reach out to educate the physicians and to educate them about some of the, the standard problems that they may not even be aware of. That's another huge issue. It is true that there, uh, the, the pharmaceutical industry did a wonderful job of making it look like opiates were not a problem. Now we have to start changing that also through education. I, I don't believe that the physicians, you know, morally in our state will, are doing it, uh, you know, knowingly, but now we have to actively educate. She made the point, too, that she had a a patient to whom she had given a prescription for Ambien, and then she found out that so had 10 other doctors. Uh, But unless a person checks, you wouldn't necessarily know if you have that relationship with your patient, which means that maybe doctors need to probe more and uh, be willing to to look through that database. Dr. Hainan? Let me tell you what happens in Narcotics Anonymous or AA meetings when one of my students or a doctor goes to one of these meetings. They get grabbed by the lapels and dragged up to the front of the front row and said, wow, a doctor, sit down, please. Let me get you a cup of coffee. Let me get you a piece of cake. And <laughs> um, let me light your cigarette. Anyway, uh, the uh, welcome to the meeting. We're really glad to see you. And of course, 
part of the reason for this is that physicians have for the longest time not always been seen as part of the solution here. We commonly are seen as part of the problem. Too many of our colleagues regard um, some forms of dependence or addiction as uh, Valium deficiency disorders uh, and that you need to just give a little more of that. We go back and forth, and I want to, I want to buy a, I want to buy a little forgiveness here for people who are in the profession. I'm sure I can hear eyes rolling on the other side of the microphone off in the audience. But the fact is, we're, we're we are subject to uh, a lot of other pressures in terms of how we provide for the public well-being. And some of that's legislated. Some of that has to do with payment. You can't actually take care of people without the office getting paid for. And when somebody suggests that you go checking on the PDMP for every patient that comes through, you are now talking about unreimbursed time that has got to come from somewhere. The The recent cycle started uh, historically back about 1980 with a piece in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, that related to un- under-medication of pain in this country. And it started a cycle that in turn led to the Joint Commission obliging hospitals to institute a fifth vital sign, which was the, the, the pain intensity and so forth. The amazing thing is all of this proceeded from what amounted to an unsubstantiated, very brief two-paragraph letter that didn't have any particular data behind it. But what we saw over the course of the next 20 or so years was an attempt to try and relieve pain and to respond to the patient's needs as perceived um, through the lens of just giving medication. Um, the, the, the downside is obvious, which is that if, in fact, people come in and the expectation is that you're going to give them an opioid in order to relieve their, their pain, a, a medication like morphine, it takes much less time than walking through the processes that are leading to this or explaining to them why the opioids may not be such a good idea and may end up leading to a newer problem. Um, I guess in a strange way I'm making an apology for the deficiencies in my own profession and it's part of what speaks to your original point about needing more education. But obviously medicine like everything else goes through its own evolution. I mean clearly when pain management became one of the drivers, this wasn't really being talked about. The idea was to keep somebody free from pain. Well, mm-hmm. that objective was met, but there wasn't really the the look beyond that. But as we're looking beyond that now, it also means that, as you say, doctors, and as, as Dr. Miskovich has said numerous times, they have to be educated too. They've got to be part of the process, which seems to be what the report with the Surgeon General does to pull everybody together and say that everyone's responsible for this and that people can't be working in silos anymore. Eddie, do you want to add something to that? I was just going to say, and I I found just in the last few months that I've been working with um, uh, getting the ESPERT grant that Dr. Mistakovich talked about um, implemented, I'm I'm talking to primary care docs, I'm talking to uh, physicians, and I think they want to be educated. I think they're looking for that information, and I don't know if it's really all that um, fair to say that it, it that it, I, I think there's a small percentage of doctors that really don't care. Um, one of the st- the statistics that we were talking about on Tuesday is that 
about 95%, was it Dr. Miskovich, of the physicians who were using the PDMP found it useful in one particular area, and that was that they were able to kind of look at what the what other uh, medications were prescribed to their patients. And that, uh, to me, that speaks to the fact that um, even though it does take time, even though it is difficult, I think most physicians and most, uh, just like most practitioners in the behavioral health field, want to do the right thing by the people that they're working with. Um, and so uh, Dr. Miskovich talked about we're talking, and Dr. Hanning is saying that the reality is we ha- w- right now we're talking more than we ever have in terms of the two sides of of the street. But the point being that that time to be able to look up and see what a patient may be taking is coming from somewhere. And and to your point, Dr. Haney, that somebody has to be doing that, the next issue is, is that going to be the doctor? Is that going to be somebody else? Is all this going to be recalculated as patients' health? I mean, we've been talking about the patient-centered home for a while and all of that, but how those different tests are recalculated so we don't get into future problems mm-hmm. seems to be also where we're at right now. We've got lots of callers on the line. If you'd like to join us, call us now, 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 to join the conversation. First, we're going to Heather calling us from Honolulu. Aloha, Heather, and thank you for your patience. Yes, thank you for this uh, for this wonderful session. I agree that this report provides an amazing framework to humanize people who are struggling with substance use. I'm actually still getting through the 425 pages, but I'd love to hear your panel's thoughts on what's the new administration's perspective on addiction and how can we build on this historic report, um, especially with new leadership at the Office of National Drug Control Policy and new leadership at SAMHSA. What can we do to really move this forward in the new administration? Thank you. All right. Well, you know, that that is the, the bazillion-dollar question right there because in so many ways we're looking at uncertainty all the way around. But as you look at this, what's the picture that you see? I just saw shrugs and heads shaking around the table. So very, very quickly, how would you respond to Heather? Dr. Haney, you want to start? So the standards of care are already being changed. What we're hoping for is that the folks who are responsible for implementing the care are taking the charge and taking it down to the patient. I can't answer any better than anybody who's trying to look at the state of um, uh, uh, who's trying to look at the state of the economy as to just what will happen in the next month. I mean, your question is brilliant, but it's unanswerable, Heather. Right now, of course, we're in the position of hoping to be able to influence that incoming administration in a way that continues in a a momentum that's been built over the course of the past 10 years or so. Um, I will basically say that I believe that there'll be so much attention spent with the Affordable Care Act and discussing it. I don't know if they're going to get down as granular as we will be uh, with this because it was actually an issue throughout the um, the election season. And I think it, it actually got covered reasonably in some of the debates. So my hope, and of course no one knows, my hope is that we're going to be not touched by this as the debate will be at a larger level. Uh, might affect us a little bit locally because it's been in the news recently that we're going to be trying to apply locally here in Hawaii for an 1115 uh, Medicaid waiver grant. And what that means, it's where we're going to be trying to get the federal government to allow us to use state and federal funds to say housing is an important part of the appropriate medical care for certain groups of patients. And obviously that subsegs over to our homeless population. Right. That that sort of back ends the whole conversation, which again goes back to the whole point that none of this is existing in isolation or a vacuum and all of it is integrated. Tied together. 
Our number is 941-3689 if you would like to get together with us, at least over the airwaves, to continue this conversation about the Surgeon General's report and changing views of addiction and treatment, and and possibly for people that you know, or maybe even you, 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. Going to Michael calling us from Wailua. Michael, you uh, there? Aloha. Aloha. Welcome to Town Hi, Square. Uh, my question is, um, my understanding of the drug OxyContin is that it's uh, synthetic heroin. Is that correct? It, Dr. It, it's a highly intense. Yeah, it's that's probably the simplest way to look at this. It's it's an opioid. It's a synthetic opioid. Uh, it's orally very much better absorbed than morphine is. So it, it certainly does the same sort of thing. We're all we're really just looking at a variety of different fingers that push the same button. Um, okay. Uh, well, it's my understanding that it is uh, similar to the. Uh, it was copied after after the organic makeup, the chemical makeup of heroin, but made in the lab. But the the chemical makeup was supposed to be very similar. But well, oxycodone that, is similar. I, I, but I've had several family members who became addicted to oxycontin, and that a lot of that came from doctors who weren't misunderstanding. You know, it wasn't a misunderstanding of oh, we have this new directive in pain management as a symptom. It was just it was it was doctors that had a relationship with drug companies who were selling this stuff and i mean they may as they call it oxycontin they may as well put the word candy after it and it wasn't doctors who were you know misinformed these guys were the doctors were like hey this is a license to party and they were handing it out like it was you know in a in a way that was like humorous to them and so i know there's going to be a certain percentage of doctors that are going to do, you know, ha- not have like a, a hard ethical line in the sand. Um, so to me, it begs the question of does the new report um, give more authority to um, file lawsuits against the companies themselves for, for marketing really powerful drugs, you know, specifically in the case of OxyContin? Um, and okay. be held accountable for that because I right. look at my Dr. Haney wants to answer you. Michael, and, Michael, yeah. hang on a second because I want to get an answer for you from Dr. Haney. Michael, Go this ahead. is Bill. I don't disagree with you, actually, on, on this particular topic. The promotion of these substances follows market forces the same way selling Coca-Cola or Pepsi-Cola does. And in anticipation of... <sighs> in anticipation of a series of questions that will follow this line, that... Uh, CDC guideline on pain management and opioids is all 72 pages. It's a little daunting, but only 20 pages of it is really pertinent, and it's a real eye-opener. It's available online through the CDC. And surprisingly, I think a number of your questions and your points are addressed very cogently there. If you go and have a look at it, you you may be surprised at just exactly how... Um, how startlingly the medical profession is held to account for not having seen these trends or responded to them well. Michael, thanks very much for the call. We're going to go moving on now to be moving on to Steve calling us from Kaimuki. If you'd like to be next, 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. Aloha, Steve. Welcome to Town Square. Hi, how are you today? Doing well, thank you. Hey, I just had a comment. Uh, being in the military, I just wanted to say that um, 
you know, uh, alcohol especially, but drug addiction is pretty prevalent, and it's something that I've been battling over the last, I don't know, decade plus, and it's it's difficult to get out there because nobody wants to talk about it. But um, in, in some of those smaller circles, you can you can get away with a lot more than than what the the general public feels or, or notices, and just wanted to put it out there. All right. I don't think you get a whole lot of disagreement from folks around the table. I'm, they're all looking at me like, yes. Okay. Thank you very much, Steve. Um, I want to bring this kind of home to Hawaii. You know, We've been told for quite a while that one in seven Americans is expected to develop a dependency sometime in their lives, and only one in ten will receive treatment. Just to give us a baseline, does this also hold true in Hawaii? Yes, it does. Yeah, it's about the same. So we uh, we so from a numbers perspective, we we are able to treat somewhere in the neighborhood of five to seven thousand individuals in Hawaii per year, and the need is closer to ninety thousand individuals per year that that need treatment. So that's a huge difference. Yeah, and you know, Bethan, I think it's fair to restart the conversation, which we're trying to do through our committee also. And just start to scratch the surface back with meth. And, you know, I think we're the meth capital of the U.S. And, you know, we really need to reignite the conversation uh, about the the challenges it's putting on our society. So, you know, we're talking about opiates. It's prime. We talk about heroin. But, you know, when you still look at the numbers, we had Judge Alm before with us. uh, We're still getting 9 out of 10 positives out of the drug courts coming positive for meth. Uh, in the offices, we see it, uh, you know, methamphetamine is is so ubiquitous. We need to address it. And as they cycle in and out of courtrooms, out of hospital rooms, out of doctor's offices, possibly on the street with a number of folks who are homeless, I mean, all of that clearly costs us money. Um, Alan Johnson was here. He's head of the Oahu Treatment Center, Hinamalka. Uh, he was here yesterday on the conversation with his take on the Surgeon General's report Here's just a little bit of what he had to say, and he starts where a lot of people do, and and that's with the money. When I was on the governor's task force, we had some uh, actuarial people come in, and then we had some consultants from the mainland come in, and they said if we were to design uh, an integrated substance abuse and mental health system, that here in Hawaii we could save $2 billion in five years. I mean, if you're talking about money, it's, it's, you, can't, you have to do it because it's just too expensive not to do it, and those, that number is getting bigger if we don't do anything. But if you're talking about lives and suffering, that, that's a whole different thing. And when you come to the to changing the systems, I think the medical care providers will say, I, we see the need and we see the science is there. We cannot just sit idly by and do nothing. Workforce is a problem. And so, you know, a major policy shift like this is just not going to happen overnight. And there are workforce issues. There's a huge shortage of primary care. You know, moving to that primary care manages more chronic illnesses. That's not what we've been doing in the United States. That has to shift. Finding doctors uh, in our field alone and where I'm at, uh, there's a huge shortage of people who who would do this kind of work. So uh, capacity issues are going to be a, a systemic problem. When he brought up the issues of not just money, and yes, we can save money, and everybody likes the idea of saving money, but you have to have the people who are able to help you save that money. And he's as he's looking at capacity and, and people who are called to do this kind of work, not everybody wants to, not everybody can, 
that seems to say that we're always going to be behind the eight ball, given the fact that we already have a physician shortage, primary care physician shortage, and that uh, we're going to have to work almost doubly hard to be able to address this part of it, as well as just having docs in general. What do you think about what he had to say about a systemic problem uh, that that's based in capacity? So two short views of that. One is it wasn't that long ago that, in fact, the the treatment community as it consisted of recovering folks with alcohol or drug use disorders who then went on to get a certification in substance abuse uh, counseling was somewhat at war with the folks who were on the so-called professional side of the house, the psychologists, the psychiatrists, the, the, the shrinks and the docs. The one, the physicians all saw the substance abuse counselors as naives and as folks who really didn't have a very professional understanding of the exotic and complicated nature of this illness. And, of course, the certified substance abuse counselors who all had been through the illness themselves saw the shrinks and the social workers and the rest as an effete bunch of snobs who really couldn't couldn't understand it from an experiential standpoint. Happily, that's history. That's not quite the way they work together now. So we're seeing an evolution in terms of the integration between people who take care of c- citizens who use drugs <laughs> at at different levels. But, you know, we almost wouldn't be having this conversation if we were talking about diabetes because nobody really – if someone fails to be compliant with their medications and has diabetes, then that's regarded as unfortunate. And they may have to go back to the hospital and they may lose their vision, they may lose their kidneys, a limb, all in the course of readmission and readmission. And if they don't take their medications, the doctor looks at them sympathetically and shakes his finger and tries whatever is possible to get them to do it as they get sicker and sicker. Meanwhile, in the world of substance use disorders, you go through treatment, and you're expected to be fixed. And if somebody at the conclusion of whatever that period of inpatient or intensive outpatient treatment is doesn't then go off into the community and attend AA and NA meetings, which are not treatment per se. They are citizens suffering from the same disorder attempting to help each other. If they don't get well, then we just say, oh, darn addicts, They they just can't get it. They just keep going back through it. And these are chronic relapsing disorders that have amazing parallels but are funded and viewed quite dissimilarly. The relapsing and the constant cost associated with all of that seems to be looked at in a very different way than we would look at, as you mentioned, any other disease. And the expectations that seem to be so at odds with each other, the idea that somebody could go through a treatment in 28 days or 38 days and be expected to be fine and fixed. That seems to say that we don't really understand addiction as well as we think we do and that we haven't been able to find ways to pay for it as well as we could. I mean, for those of us on the outside who look in and say, well, you know, as you say, they, they went through the program. What's the matter? Well, we're not even willing to use the same models. If we did, then Scott here would be, in fact, seeing patients over the long term. Mm-hmm. They, he, we'd have an addictionist the same way your diabetic patient would have an internist, and they'd be coming back and seeing regularly or seeing one of Ed's substance abuse counselors on a recurring basis maybe for the next 20 years. Yeah, I, w- I would agree, and I I have always loved the way Dr. Haining articulates things. Um, 
the the reality is is that we do uh, understand addiction probably as well as we understand diabetes and other chronic diseases. From, from the scientific perspective, from that we've had that for 20 years, yeah. yeah. We, what, what I think we don't understand is that just like some of those other chronic diseases, we need to address it from a public health chronic disease approach. And we're just barely scratching the surface on being willing to do that as a society. If you compare how we've mobilized over the last 25 or so years with HIV, for example, which started out with the same types of stigma that addiction has had for the last 200 years. Um, it took 20 years for us to realize we needed to take a public health, public uh, uh, safety approach to, to chronic disease of HIV. But we're still scratching that surface. And comparatively, the disease of addiction is 200 years old or more, and the disease of HIV is 25, 30 years. So... We need to. Uh, it's not that we don't understand the the it's, disease. It's, it's, it's we on the it's the the we is the part that I think we need to qualify. When I said we, I meant we on the outside oh, yeah. who don't get the same kind of view or don't have that twenty year experience with all the science. And so, looking at it exactly the way you've articulated, uh, and ex- we, and having those expectations, we just don't know any better. And it goes back to those social paradigms and social constructs that we've talked about. And, and the idea that, that what's so exciting about the, the Surgeon General's report and other initiatives that have happened in the last six months is that the, the paradigm, the, the public paradigm, is, is being shifted because of these things. Yeah. We're going to take a couple calls unless you want to jump in here quickly, Scott Miskovich. I just want to say, you know, what Dr. Henning just said. Um, actually, we're starting. Uh, yeah. You know, there is some degree of innovation that's starting to occur, and innovations occurring both from some of the push from CMS, some of our cooperative work uh, with the insurance carriers, and we're working with HMSA to really change the paradigm. And in 2017, I'm going to be having uh, a full-time psychologist working in my office. I wouldn't anticipate mm-hmm. that there's a possible chance that by the end of the year I might have uh, uh, a substance abuse counselor also integrated right within our group of six to eight providers you know, we're caring for a fairly large segment of the population, but we need to start doing something differently. And I think, fortunately, there are elements both within the government and insurance carriers who also have to be part of the solution that are starting to recognize, let's figure out the innovative ways to deal with this. We're going to take some more callers. If you'd like to join us, 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. Going to Leah Linda calling us from Pa'oa. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much. This is a great panel. Um, So my question has to do with what kind of support or infrastructure messaging do we need for our dear physicians? You know, listening to Dr. Lemke today when she was describing, um, you know, finding out that her patient was seeing 10 other doctors for prescriptions for Ambien, you know, you could hear in her voice the shock, the self-doubt. You know, one of the concerns I had listening to her was, you know, this could almost be a pendulum swinging in the opposite directions where we would have the physician, you know, much, much more paternal, maybe a little paranoid, more judgmental, that it could, you know, almost swing in the opposite direction where with the report and the physician saying, you know, you're part of the situation or part of the problem, that we don't create this climate where the physicians are disengaged. So how do we how do we get them to not only shift their thinking to chronic disease, but also to, but also get them to back down off of the, you know, the, the fear factor of of, um, of you know of dealing with 
uh, dealing with the disease. All right, I've got I got two docs looking at me smiling who want to answer you. Who's going to go first? Uh, I'd, I'd like to bring Scott up Miskovich, okay. just a practical issue that we all have to have a concern, and I'm sure Dr. Haining will have a, a, a good perspective on this, and that is we're already seeing this, and we're concerned that some of the doctors are getting so fearful, especially in the world of opiates, that they are automatically seeing patients who are getting too many, that they've been helping uh, in good faith thinking, and they stop immediately. And that isn't helping our population. That has turned a lot of people over to heroin, and it's turned them over to street access. So there has to be a balance when people are on these medications that we have to have access to treatment, or we're going to be creating more problems and more severe problems unless we have access to the appropriate referrals and treatments. Dr. Haney? So was it Linda or Leah Linda? I'm sorry. So, uh, so this is Bill speaking. And what I'm always concerned about as I watch these trends is there was a federal act in 1914, the Harrison Act, uh, which attempted to regulate opioid prescription in this country and uh, punish physicians in brief for being what were seen as the abettors of a, an opioid epidemic of its time. I mean, this is not the first wave of opioid dependence that has come tsunami-like through the country. I mean, this happened before, and it goes back as far as well before the Civil War and the use of morphine and hypernervic syringes. Anyway, it's not a history lesson. I'm just saying this has happened before, and unfortunately what the Harrison Act was in part was a backslap at the people who were attempting to provide care of the time, and care of the time consisted of just giving people what they thought they needed and what they certainly wanted. We're missing an important component in this conversation right now or in the equation of proper treatment of the patient, and that's the patient. You normally get that kind of buy-in with somebody who has an infectious disorder or a broken leg or whatever. They'll generally be pretty cooperative because they see the end point here. It's not necessarily the case with the folks with substance use disorders because this, well, there are a bunch of reasons for that. But you'll notice that there really isn't any march of dimes for addicts. There there really isn't a, uh, um, there isn't the equivalent from an, uh, from an an analogous standpoint of a su- support organization nationwide that attempts to secure better care. Or even, you know, a group of folks, as we saw with HIV in Hollywood, that took up the cause. Huge difference that made, didn't it? I mean, the, the whole notion of ACT UP suddenly empowering a population that was seen as either frail or just passive. But, of course, part of it, too, is a tradition of not wanting to draw attention to oneself and of, moreover, of anonymity as an element of recovery. Anonymity is an important element of recovery using a a very important model. But it also, unfortunately, works at odds with an effort to try and secure the limelight from federal government funding sources and all the rest. People with alcohol use disorders, even though they may forgive the vulgarity, piss people off a bit in their behaviors, um, also are rather shy in the other direction of drawing attention to themselves. They don't get the services that they need. Eddie Mercero, you want to add any to this? Symptomology. If we look at it from a disease perspective, the symptomology of addiction um, includes manipulation, dishonesty, denial, um, shame, those kinds of things. We um, to to speak to uh, Leo Linda's really uh, valid point. 
we have to let the doctors know that it's not their fault for being duped by the people who have this disease because the symptomology of the disease includes those things that I just named. Right, and it's also the fact that, that most of us want to believe when somebody tells us something that we take them at face value as being true, especially exactly. when you're talking about a patient relationship with his or her doctor. Exactly. All right, Dr. Miskovich, you want to add anything to that or shall we move on? We're going to move on. Going to Don now calling us from Kauai. If you want to join us, call us now at 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 as we're taking a look at the Surgeon General's report on addiction. Aloha, Don. Welcome to Town Square. Uh, aloha. Uh, I would like to just, um, real briefly, you know, I, I cut this out of USA Today a few months ago. It was from CDC. Uh, the headline front page, doctors told not to prescribe opiates for chronic pain. CDC says risk far outweigh benefits. Of course, the American Cancer Society came back. Uh, their uh, Action Network president, Chris Hansen, criticized the move for disregarding the important role of pain management for cancer survivors. Pain does not end necessarily when an individual completes uh, cancer treatment. Okay, um, that's just background there. Um, I just want to throw this out quick. Daily deaths in the United States, 43 murders, 117 suicides. 129 uh, car crashes, 1,315 smoking, 890 obesity, heart mm-hmm. attacks, strokes, etc. Accidental drug ODs, 129. Okay, we're talking about 4% of the untoward uh, deaths in our country coming from opiates. Uh, and yet, you know, this can't sell enough newspapers. It cannot uh, uh, promulgate enough uh, radio and TV and talk shows and whatnot. My point is this, as a long-time uh, cancer survivor and opiate user, uh, we have uh, the right to uh, uh, be part of the uh, decision-making when we decide our treatment. And um, not every society considers opiate use to be uh, a problem. You know, we define it that way in this uh, rather puritanical society that has always endorsed alcohol and tobacco, our biggest killers, you know. And this now is getting, like, all the press, and it's just a fraction of alcohol. Okay, Don, I I want to have Dr. Haney answer you a little bit because I I know that I saw you nod your head when he was mentioning the uh, the USA Today report talking about what the, the CDC had said about opiates. But when he's talking from the perspective of someone who is a cancer survivor mm-hmm. and says they should be part of it, I didn't hear anybody around this table say that a patient shouldn't be part of that or shouldn't have pain managed appropriately, but the you know operative word was appropriately. Yeah, but I understand Don's fear, which is the backlash issue. And and it certainly is a real possibility given the fact that so much of medical care ends up being the outcome of both economic or mercantile forces as well as of legislative prejudice. So I, I, I you know, I, I can't criticize you for holding that view because I can't say that it won't happen. Uh, it has happened before. On the other hand, what has been seen is a 
trend that involves at least a fourfold increase in opioid-related deaths over the course of the past five years. And the trouble is when you begin to see epidemiologic trends, you can either choose to ignore them, <laughs> in which case uh, tragedy ensues, or you can uh, you can investigate just what was the, the trigger event that set this going. Probably the trigger event had to do with competitive market forces. Should you get your pain relief? Absolutely. Does it need to be limited to opioid management for everybody who has migraine or who has pain of other sources? No, probably not. Scott um, Miskovich, you want to add something to yeah, that? Yeah, I want to add something real quick. As the person who's actually chairing this committee for the state that's trying to address this, I want to give him just a little bit of what I said at the beginning and I've re-echoed. When I started uh, addressing the committee, I said, I want everybody to envision this fort and this wall. And within this wall are all the people of Hawaii who are appropriately using these medications and need these medicines to survive. And if we do our job well at the end of this time when we look at legislation, those people will be protected. And it's only the people outside who are diverting, who are using them inappropriately, or have a substance use disorder, they will be the ones we're trying to address. So I think that everyone is keenly aware, and we're really going to do everything we can to uh, address that with the people of of Hawaii. All right, well, I want to take a couple more calls before we have to say goodbye for the evening. Going to Dan, calling us from Waianae. Aloha, Dan. Aloha. Um, My name is Dan, and I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. Hi, Dan. Hi, Dan. Hi, guys. And um, I've had I've been in AA for 40 years, and I've only got two years sober and clean. And I was reading the big book the other night, and something jumped out at me that I'd never had read it a thousand times. I've memorized it. And it says this. It says, Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest there are such unfortunates. Mm-hmm. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. And it blew me away because I've never been able to get more than, well, the most time I've ever had in 40 years or eight years. And I just, um, I can't, I don't know what to think because I don't know very many people that are completely honest with themselves, but I just wanted to input that. Okay, let me get you a little bit of input from the folks around the table, and thank you very much, Dan, for being willing to call, and I hope this two-year stretches for you into many, many more. Dan, Dan, this is Bill. I'm an alcoholic and an addict, Uh, and I I say that in large part because... um, it's a it's a familiar story for both of us. We've we've heard this from a lot of our friends, and we've had this experience ourselves. What we're what we're actually not talking about today, because that's another hour or two or three, mm-hmm. is the whole process of treatment advocacy for uh, for all of the addictions and how you manage to merge the traditional treatment methodologies with the medication assisted methodologies that exist. Um, I I don't know that I'm responding to a particular question that you've posed. I think what I'm trying to do is respond to your to to your concern and your experience by saying that there are an awful lot of folks who are trying to improve the likelihood that folks like you and me get to stay alive and um 
have the life that we hoped we were going to have back when we were 15 or 16. Thanks very much, Dan, for calling, and thank you for your answer, Bill. Going now to Andre, very quickly. Aloha, Andre, before we have to say goodbye uh, this evening. Yeah, aloha. 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 Uh, I'm calling from Hilo. Um, my name is Andrea. I'm a cannabis activist. And uh, I wanted to ask the uh, panel uh, about uh, uh, using cannabis uh, uh, for uh, chronic pain and uh, for weaning people off of the opioids. Okay, we're going to have to, um, we're gonna have to stop right... There are a number of people that have uh, used it uh, very beneficially. And, I, and, I, uh, I, know, I know where you're going with this, but let me see if I can get your answer before we have to say goodbye, so forgive me. Scott Miskovich, you want to pick that up? Um, I personally am anxious to see where we're going as a state. I would love to look at, uh, and I've proposed that we have a registry that we start analyzing as people use the dispensary what the actual uses are and look at it scientifically. We still have to understand that there's still nine to eleven percent of people who actually have true addiction, uh, and you know, but there there are possibilities that they'll do better with cannabis than on uh, high doses of oxycodone or oxycontin for their pain. As we begin, as we begin to stop treating the drug and start treating the disease, I think that we'll start to see a separation of um, uh, making the drug that people are taking to manage chronic pain the issue versus just managing the chronic pain. We have to go in just about a, a minute or so. I want to go right around the table and say that. If or have each of you say that if there is a, a takeaway that you want to make sure we don't miss from this report or from the fact that we now have the 21st Century Cures Act, what is it that you want us to know as an insider that the rest of us on the outside should walk away thinking about? Any more, Uh We need the public. So, so my... My arena uh, government, I think, is really working really, really hard to in Hawaii to really uh, integrate and coordinate services and stuff like that. And we know what we're doing. We know what we're dealing with. We know the complexity of the problem. We need the public's health. We need them to understand that, again, this is a disease and we need to treat it as such. Scott Muscovich. I want to continue our work as a policy so we can broaden the education both to the public. I want to really help the physicians of our state get more educated on the process that we're dealing with. And I want to have more of these conversations, addiction, psychiatry, government, primary care, and all the other stakeholders. And Bill Haining. I am not a representative of any of the age <laughs> of ARNA. I make, needed to make that point clear. And having said that, a large part of what my role is is folks will take things, do things better if they feel empowered by their education. Dr. Bill Henning, thank you for being here. Eddie Mercero and Dr. Scott Miskovich. Clearly, we're going to have some more discussions about all of this, but I want to thank you for the one this evening. And to all of you for calling in, I'm Beth Ann Koslovich. I'll be back with you tomorrow morning for the conversation. Meanwhile, have yourselves a good evening. Aloha. <laughs>